0: Welcome to Bonnet to Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke.
1: And I'm your host, Hannah
0: Chapman. And this is our first episode of our mini season on sex, scandal, and social climbers.
1: It shouldn't come as a huge surprise to anyone that a podcast exploring the lives of women writers touches on scandal when you consider the fact that the very act of writing for many of these women was scandalous. And I've been thinking a lot about this this week, Lauren, because I just finished a, a book by Cathy O'Shaughnessy called In Love with George Eliot. And it just made me think about how scandal is just this double-edged sword for these women, We've discussed George Eliot so many times on the show, I won't go into it too much, but just to some of the context, it was obviously a huge scandal when she started living with George Henry Lewis as his wife, even though he was married to someone else. But what I didn't really consider is that when George Henry Lewis dies and she remarries Johnny Cross, who's 20 years younger than her, it's then a huge scandal because they got married in a church. and she actually married him and so the people that they kind of that her and George Henry Lewis had pulled around them after society had kind of cast her out and then they found people that would accept her you know and would respect her and then she was cast out by them my goodness not by everyone but you know people were like not not everyone was on board with it but then her brother, her estranged brother, who fell out with her because of her like religious beliefs, he got in touch. Oh, there's really so some people back in. <laughs> some people back in. It's just like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, right. Just, yeah, it just really blew that open for me.
0: I am uh, so happy that you actually brought up George Eliot because I did think that maybe we should do a scandalous life of George Eliot episode, but. <laughs> It just would never, ever be as good as that 2002 docudrama, George Eliot, A Scandalous Life, which stars Harriet Walter as Marianne Evans. And she absolutely crushes, which, I mean, is no surprise because she's great in everything she does. I mean, her resume is wild, right? Like Downton Abbey, Killing Eve. She's the best Fanny Dashwood. So this docudrama also has... David Bamber, AKA mm. 1995, Mr. Collins and Barbara Lee Hunt, AKA 1995, lady Catherine de Berg. And so strange that Barbara Lee Hunt actually comes up in this interview today. Oh. So stay tuned for that name drop. Never talked about the woman before in my life, but <laughs> she's going to come up twice in this episode. Um, you can watch that documentary, by the way, on YouTube
1: in six parts, and it's delightful. I did it this morning. I had a lovely time in bed. Did you love it? That. Yeah. I wish, I wish it had talked more about how Venice smelled of poo, because that's I, that mm. was in the, the book I just read a lot. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, I just felt like that's really important. That detail <laughs> important was missing. An important detail to the story. I didn't feel like they were getting across how much he hated the smell of Venice. <laughs> Uh, oh, it's my dream to
0: make a docudrama like that one one day. <laughs> so good. So, anyway, I look forward to sharing all of these upcoming episodes with you all. Um, we did sort of like go out in search of sex scandal and gossip, but I think what's kind of interesting is that all the things we came back with pretty much revolve more so around money, image, and power dynamics, mm. which. Makes sense, right? Because those are the excellent sort of ingredients for a scandal.
1: Yeah. So I guess it makes sense. And the motivations for gossip, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So I really was like, should I rename the series? Let's just leave it. These are all the same thing. (laughs) These all work together. So to kick things off this season, we are going to be talking about Social Climbers with friend of the show, Lydia Craig. This week, we will be discussing the work of Alicia LaFenu and her novel Fashionable Connections, which was
1: published in 1824 as part of Tales of a Tourist. You might remember Dr. Lydia Craig from our season four Northanger Abbey read-long and season 4.4 episode five, Finding Sarah E. Farrow, but for those who don't, Lydia received her PhD in English from Loyola University and co-founded the Loyola University Chicago Victorian Society. Uh, She's taught on the Victorian novel and more recently turned her attention to 19th century race, manners, and cultural encounters. What is it that you like about social climbers and upstarts? I find that
0: very interesting. I like that
2: they were considered to be so radical when they're really not I mean mm. these are people who want to be rich these are people who want to make it this is the most selfish kind of thing um, and they're being treated in Britain at least in the beginning part of the 19th century as if they're trying to destroy the country when they really just you know want a bigger carriage <laughs> they want a house in town you know right. they're not really going for the Liberty fraternity thing. Um <laughs> They actually, you know, for them to rise, they have to have their society remain structurally intact. So they're not trying to destroy the aristocracy. Um, But yet the aristocracy assume that this is going to happen. So I got actually obsessed with this because I started noticing in the 19th century novel that anyone who's a social climber is seen as a threat. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand why it was so dangerous there's just like this menace and there's all this underlying imagery um usually involving the french revolution which i just couldn't understand so i actually started researching this around the 1860s and then i kept getting pushed farther and farther back and i was so confused we go past the reform bill and it gets worse so i actually approached it backwards and then we get to the french revolution and i'm like okay this is kind of where it starts why so i did some digging, and I found out that um, when Edmund Burke wrote about the French Revolution in 1790, um, he basically suggested that the French middle class had caused the French Revolution so that they could supplant the aristocracy. So the poor hadn't rioted because they were poor and starving; it was because they'd been incited to do it by the you know bourgeois people. You know they they were trying to take over this country, and so. In Britain, they assume this is going to happen there.
0: Okay. So, yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's I love started. that we have nailed down yeah. a starting place. That's great. <laughs> From an American perspective, like, we're all about moving up, right? Like, so it's hard for yes. Americans to really get their mind around, like, why this is such a bad thing.
2: <laughs> well, it, it's actually interesting because. Um, every country has this kind of cycle as I've seen, even Germany had this um, just about two centuries after Britain did, this kind of upstart crisis. I call it an upstart peril. It's when a lot of wealth um, starts sort of moving that middle strata up and they become more prominently wealthy and they're flaunting their wealth. Um, the parvenus, the upstarts. So in America, you get it in the roaring twenties with the great Gatsby mm-hmm. and he's an upstart. <laughs> And he's creating chaos in these, you know, moneyed families. So we do have that kind of theme, but I think we celebrate it more than um, the British did because they were, they were scared it was going to actually destroy their country. It wasn't just this whole game anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so we don't have to worry about destroying the aristocracy. We just want to keep going up and up and up and then
0: maybe be president. Right. <laughs> Yeah, in literature, who's your favorite upstart? Mm, probably Becky Sharp. I would say Becky Sharp. Um,
2: Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair is actually set, um, you know, at the time of Napoleon's rise, so you know, eighteen tens, and it goes all the way until just before the Reform Bill. It mentions it, but it doesn't really have action after it, and that's the period after the French Revolution rise of the ultimate upstart Napoleon who Thackeray was obsessed with and had actually seen as a child and then you've got you know the career of this upstart until the reform bill of 1832 which allows middle class people with property certain amount of money to vote who are male and that's Mm -hmm. the beginning of this Victorian middle class story of success and cultural you know giftedness Mm -hmm. but um yeah, it's really the story of that upstart peril period. Yeah. So I like seeing her in action and seeing her seeing her just sort of show everyone in society how corrupt they are.
0: Yeah, do you feel like we're in another, like, upstart, upheaval time? I mean, we're in a very weird time.
2: <laughs> now, if you're asking me to talk about the stock market and our economic woes right now, I don't know. But I do think that... Um, I'd see more interest in upstarts in, you know, films that are coming out, not just the Hallmark Channel. But right. So many different themes. Um, you know, I think the fact that people, a lot of people are financially struggling right now. Um, things aren't so great. Um, I think there is an interest in, you know, success stories are making it big people always jump onto something like you know cryptocurrency or some way to get rich Mm -hmm. quick and then some people make it and they become our new heroes so i think upstarts have always kind of shown us the way out Mm
0: -hmm. if
2: we're looking for wealth and prestige
0: yeah and we're yeah we're kind of like moving into also like scammer territory which i think is interesting which might be like the cousin or the sister to an upstart (laughs) Sometimes overlapping, I guess, on that graph.
2: Yeah, I actually talk about that in my um in my dissertation because there are um deserving upstarts, the ones that don't actually want money. They just want to live in a comfortable situation in life. They don't want to be the aristocracy, they just want to have this life of the mind and and do good works and that kind of thing. So think Elizabeth Bennett, when she rejects. Um, Mr. Darcy, he's actually completely floored. And it makes sense if you think about the propaganda that's going on about upstarts at that time. Upstarts want to upstart. So the fact that she won't when he knows the whole family has been throwing themselves at people, you know, that's a shock to him Mm -hmm. that she doesn't want that. Um, But then you have people like Wickham who are absolutely undeserving upstarts who are trying to get exactly that, Mr. Darcy's wealth. And in almost every novel um, that has upstarts, like Lucy Steele, Eleanor Dashwood, there's always a pair, undeserving and deserving. Yeah. And so throughout the novel, they kind of show you the right way to join the middle class. And then there's the wrong way to try to do this. Um, so if you ever see an upstart that's a trickster upstart, mm-hmm. that's totally in the spirit of this kind of
0: thing. Um, they can be good. They can be bad. <laughs> I love a trickster upstart just as a writer. It's a great, it's a great device. Like use it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. And
2: and they do um, like one of, one of my favorite ones is in Pickwick papers by Charles Dickens. That's 1836 that he started serializing it. And Jingle is the ultimate upstart strolling actor impoverished who just keeps role-playing all these different wealthy people trying to marry into money. I love it. It's just, it's so funny. It's great reading material. (laughs) It's a great way to look at society too. I think it kind of shows you how appearance-focused we are. Mm
0: -hmm. So a lot
2: of these fake upstarts often succeed. They often succeed for a while. Like um, Uriah Heap is a big one in David Copperfield. Um, David Copperfield is pretty much in the same boat as Uriah Heap. They're both trying to make it this gentleman. And the only reason why one of them is good and the other isn't is morals. Um, Keep doesn't have any. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs)
2: He's also very slimy, but but yeah, you you just have these very tricky, hilarious, evil
0: people trying to make it like everyone else. They're just not allowed to rise. Now, I think, I don't know if you watch Real Housewives, but maybe at the top of this episode, Hannah and I will have to do a whole, or at the end of this episode, a whole <laughs> thing on Erica Jane, who is definitely a trickster upstart. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it is all appearance based. See, once you see it, it's everywhere. Yes. Yes. I feel like you should talk to
2: my sister. She is into that and the Bachelor Bachelorette
0: shows. So I always go to her for my of the drama. I mean, fascinating (laughs) stuff is happening and it's all motivated by money. (laughs) And it's, they say it's it's for love, but it's all about money and like Instagram followers. It's wild. Well, I mean, this is what upstarts will do. They are doing
2: this right now. They are on Instagram. They are pretending to be wealthy. They're posing. There was one person in the media recently, I forget her name, um, Anna Sorkin perhaps, but she pretended to be a Russian millionaire. Yes. Yeah. And um, she got so many wealthy people to pay for her because they thought she had money and she ran up all these bills and people were giving her credit. So she eventually got arrested and I think they, um, they asked her why she did it. And she said something really chilling, like, because I felt powerful. And I
0: was like, ah, oh, so great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've started still doing it. <laughs> You're still doing it. That Her life is being turned into a Shonda Rhimes TV show. And I believe Lena Dunham st- has one as well. There's a competing. It's one's for Netflix and one's for HBO. And I remember yeah. reading that. In, I think it was like a New Yorker piece on her. And I was like, wow, this could be a Victorian novel. <laughs> or today yes or in the 1920s yes (laughs) the
2: story is timeless the thing that interests me is it kind of explains. it it is and it explains to me so much about the english novel itself because it first started out being about things like you know people rising themselves up through you know um, crime like mall flanders prostitution um slavery (laughs) plantation owning in the new world And all of these people come back to Great Britain as upstarts who don't usually become members of the aristocracy, but they're middle class, Mm -hmm. but it's not seen as like a dangerous thing. It's just sort of like, and then I repented of all of my fun times and, you know, started going to church and I'm also rich and that's how it always ends. Right. But then, you know, in the Victorian period, it's so delicate, so dangerous and almost every 19th century novel has upstarts in it that have to negotiate that kind of identity um and emma mrs elton is the ultimate upstart and she tells everyone i hate upstarts they're everywhere i hate them but then the more she talks you see she's actually from an upstart family that are new in their neighborhood <laughs> and it just mm-hmm. it just continues you know and um emma calls her an upstart um just hates her but yet she's helping Harriet become an upstart so it's like Mm -hmm. this entire culture of the middle class rising and there's so much guilt and there's so much confusion about how this new society is going to work out um so yeah I I think it definitely changes how I look at the novel like what what is the novel for it's for the middle class to explain we don't actually want to do bad things to this country we're going to introduce social projects and reform and yeah that becomes the gift instead of
0: the revolution. We promise we're not going to burn it all down. Yes. <laughs> Yet. Now, were you looking for upstarts when you came across Fashionable Connections? Is that how you found that book?
2: Yes. So I actually was halfway through my dissertation when I realized I'd made a horrible mistake. And so I had that started very bad, writing by the way. chapters on Thackeray and Dickens. <laughs> I know this always happens. You're halfway through your dissertation, hopefully not at the end of your dissertation. Then you realize you've made a horrible mistake. It just, it, it is part of it. Um, so I told you I'd been pushed back farther and farther to the mm-hmm. French revolution, right. To come up with all this. So I ended up, instead of starting with the, the, you know, mid Victorians, I'm starting with Austin. Mm-hmm. And then I had, um, the chapters on Dickens and Thackeray. So I'm trying to find authors in the middle to explain what happened. So I find Catherine Gore and she had a few mentions of upstarts, but what I had realized was I was searching for upstart. I wasn't searching for other words for it like parvenu, which is French. And that was obviously what people were using as the word to describe it. So I started searching for Parvenu and that's where I found her novel peers and Parvenu's, which is the best allegory for this whole situation you could ever find Mm -hmm. published in um, 1846. But so I'm searching for Parvenu and I start looking for like variations of that. And that's when fashionable connections popped up Um, because in it, It's all about this climbing society in the 1820s. Society's falling apart. Everything's changing. They've had a huge population boom. There's not enough to go around. The economy is crashing because they went off the gold standard, um, just about to go right back on it. And it's about 10 years away from reform, which almost tore the the entire country apart. Riots in the street, people being shot, um, wild times. So I came across that. Because one of the women in it hates parvenus, and she calls them paravants because she doesn't know French. So <laughs> anyone who's a social climber is a paravant. So yeah, that's how I came across it. It was a complete accident. And I started reading it for um, just its connection to upstarts. Mm-hmm. And almost everyone in this book is an upstart. And they're not only white upstarts, they're also black upstarts or interracial upstarts. And I was like, oh,
1: this is the book everyone
2: told me never existed. <laughs> <You know? laughs> rich, black, rich,
0: black people living in London high society. What? Right? right? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. just happen in Bridgerton. It, it happened, guys. It happened. This, this was published in
2: 1822. It has a date of 1823. But um, yeah, this... This was published a few years after Austin's death. This is legit. This was published by Alicia Le Fanu. Um, She's more famous for being the cousin of Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. She comes from the Sheridan family. Also a cousin of Caroline Norton, which I find
0: really interesting. So well connected but poor. Okay. <laughs> and she wrote novels. She wrote a few books, right? But not like wildly. Mm-hmm. Is she, why, how, where was she on the fame scale? I guess um it's difficult to say because i'm pretty sure most of her novels were
2: pulped um but there is a poem i've come across that basically makes fun of young women for having all of her novels and reading them until they're sort of falling apart okay so i'm pretty sure among women she was extremely popular Mm -hmm. she also had a lot of her novels before this reviewed um but they tend to be like um, Strathallon is one of them. It was recently made into um, an, I think it was a, I don't think it was Broadview, but it was, um, it was brought out again as an edition. Mm-hmm. And um, it was actually, it's, it's kind of interesting, but it's like in the Gothic romantic style, I think it was Anna M. Fitzer who edited it. But yeah, most of the books are Gothic romance. Um set in England mostly but nothing it's not written in the style of Jane Austen kind of like this is Mm -hmm. it's a different genre it's more like you know think Anne Radcliffe and then suddenly there's this book that is just very unusual and very unlike anything else she ever wrote I think it might have been an experiment okay Um,
0: I was gonna say I think yeah I think I heard that from you that yeah that her mom may have helped her write it which I think is interesting Definitely based on her mom's life a little bit.
2: At okay. least for the main character, Julia. So you wanted a synopsis.
0: <laughs> yeah. This would be a good time to give it. Yeah. Give us a little a little synopsis of this book. Um, and we will say that you you can find it on Google Books. You can read it. And I'm okay. sure some people will be interested in finding that and reading it, which we'll Correct. give links to and all that good stuff later.
1: Perfect. So
2: this is actually, so it's a four volume set called tales of a tourist um so this is in the last two volumes of that so it starts halfway through volume three and then takes up the whole of volume four so it's not a very long novel it's the shorter one of the two that are in there Mm -hmm. um the first one is the outlaw it's about an irish it's set in ireland about an irish family it also has a woman who cross dresses a lot and does all these crazy pranks which I love. So very transgressive women. Um, But this one is set in England and it begins with a brother and a sister, uh, Julia and Horatio Somerville, and they have just experienced a tragedy, but it doesn't tell you that at first. It just starts with them deciding to find a house and, and move away from London into the country up to sort of to the Northwest. So they see the ad in the newspaper, they go up there and they find it's nothing like what they read about. The description is fake, just Mm -hmm. like everything else in their society, but they take it anyway. And then they start meeting all the locals in this um, area near the Lake District. And it's just an amazing village dynamic. You've got the, you know, wealthy aristocrats, you've got the meddlesome busybodies who come over and talk to Julia. And um, then you've got Horatio who's trying to build the family fortunes up again as a lawyer and he's commuting to London. So Julia starts becoming happier there, getting to know a few of the local families, including the Sanderson's who are paravents or parvenus. Um, but then you find out that their father committed suicide as Julia's trying to open the door to save his life. She hears the shot and she is too late. So his partner stole their fortune and speculated and lost it. So they have no money and they're trying to recover their position in society that they once held among the tawn in London. So at that point, she meets Adolphus LaCelle, who is the local- Great vicar. Name. great it's, name. It's, it's a terrible name. <laughs> he's very romantic. He's always like, I'm so alone. And she's just like, Oh, wow, you're so hot. And her brother's like, he's ridiculous. Like, why are you <laughs> he's so romantic? Why is he, you know, he's like even just making fun of that whole romantic era, you know. But it turns out he actually has a tragic backstory. So she falls in love with him. That's a whole plot of its own. Um, but it's also while they're there, and this um town of Rothbury that we find out this, you know, that there's the story of Mr. Tornado. So he's a Creole, which means he's, um, you know, he's got one parent who's black and one who is white. So we find out later that his father is a plantation owner in the West Indies and his mother is an African. And because this is before abolition by at least 16 years, she is almost certainly enslaved Mm -hmm. so he's the heir mr tornado he has no first name which makes you think his name might have been tornado um amazing name there's a whole history of yeah (laughs) yeah and uh, you know he, he his name sticks out he sticks out but he's staying at bear hall with the burkett family and he falls in love with one of the daughters isabella and this is one of my favorite parts um she renames herself Belinda. Mm-hmm. And I instantly was like, how does this have anything to do with, with Edgeworth? And then I remembered Belinda, at least when it was first published in 1801 um, by Mariah Edgeworth, Belinda is courted by a West Indian gentleman who is also interracial. So this is the only literary equivalent for her own life experience that Isabella is aware of, so she names herself Belinda. That's
0: amazing. Um,
2: I love that call. Unfortunately, out. Squire Burkett doesn't let them get married. <laughs> I know it's so great. A fellow Irish woman, because you know, Lephany was Irish. But um, Squire Burkett refuses to let them marry. It's a very Kathy Heathcliff kind of situation. He says, um, not a drop of black blood will mingle with my family. If that isn't racist. <laughs> I don't know what is. Right. So that starts setting up the whole story of the um the tornado family. Um, he ends up marrying another woman, Jane Sanderson, who was the friend of Belinda. Mm-hmm. And they, because you know, she's an upstart, they move to London. And that's when you find out he's actually probably been using these women all along for his own purpose, um, which is he needs a white chaperone for his two sisters who are fully black. So they're his half sisters. They're not. It's, it's, see, I am actually interested in the backstory of all this. I've been writing a play Mm -hmm. on the side because I'm just kind of like so fascinated by the story. Yeah. I mean, I'm not very far into it, but it's just like, it's more for me just to kind of trying to understand how these women have managed to become wealthy to have access to that kind of education they received in London and Mm -hmm. then have the, that kind of experience, you know, among all these white people in high society. Um, So they're named Theodora and Mariamne Tornado. So they've got first names, which I love, and they've got great names. (laughs) They they do. And Their names actually, I've been going into this a long time, like trying to figure out what they're based on, but um, their names usually refer to women in classical history um, or church lore who are either saints or empresses, or, you know, Mariamne was the wife of Herod and she refused to be subjugated to him and defied him. And so he finally put her to death. But, you know, these are rebellious women who want revenge Mm -hmm. and they have these beautiful old names. So I kind of like that. We don't know what role their mother had in all of this too, you know, is this some horrible bargain? Um, You know, she's still back there they're escaped they're, The moment their feet touched British soil, they were free.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So just the act of bringing those sisters there with his father's permission or not, we don't know. We do know that the father approves of his marriage mm-hmm. to Jane and, you know, s- keeps sending the money, but they're all living on the proceeds of slavery and Jane starts gambling their money away. She's actually a really great chaperone and very nice to the girls, which is weird I didn't expect her character to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's interesting that Mr. Tornado just lets her it away. He, d- he doesn't seem to care.
0: Yeah.
2: He just, it's almost like he, he doesn't, he doesn't really have an attachment to this money mm-hmm. except in terms of how his sisters are able to use it. Um, so there's a great scene in the book where the girls, uh, Jane asks, Amelia de Ross Somerville who marries Horatio um, to escort these women to the opera because they are um, actually, I think it's a play, but they want to see um, an adaptation of one of Sir Walter Scott's novels. Mm -hmm. So they're they're huge fans of Scott, you know, they're, they're, they love music. They're actually pupils of very famous teachers in London, um, So they show up to Amelia's house where she's sitting with Julia, the novel's heroine. And Amelia is, I don't know if I can say this, but she's kind of a bitch. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) She is selfish, cruel, she's heartless. She's the daughter of an Earl and she definitely feels her um, consequence throughout the novel. She's horrible to Julia, but she is the most racist person in the novel. Mm -hmm. So when they walk in the door, she almost dies. And she reacts to their color. She reacts to the fact that they are well-dressed. They are wealthy. They're wearing white to set off their looks. They they are so proud. The second time she sees them, they're wearing turbans and, tr- and looking exotic. You know, um, They're not shrinking at all. They're well-spoken. They're friendly. They're polite. Um, and she just can't handle it. So she has a meltdown after they've left and says, I won't be seen with those creatures for support she says to Julia that she, um, she says, Oh, if you only knew Miss Somerville, my antipathy, my horror of blacks and Julia trying to calm her down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she does do a weird thing where she assures, um, she assures Amelia that she looks beautiful beside them. So don't worry, you know, like, don't worry. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're white. It's great. You know, that's kind of the implication. That's a weird moment, but, um, yeah, you can tell that Julia is humiliated by her sister-in-law's behavior, so she's always Mm -hmm. trying to make them notice it less when they're around each other. So she doesn't eventually have to take them to the ball because she finds out that there's been a a death in the family, but you know, it's, I think, a very very interesting moment for scholars of the Black experience in London Mm -hmm. to see that, you know, this is the 1820s, (laughs) this is a huge, huge issue for these wealthy Black people to be in high society.
0: That scene would be so great on film. I feel, this is like, it's kind of- um, I know. It's such an epic story. Like it's not a long novel, but there's so many plot lines. So it does make it really great for like adaptation. Oh, I mean, it's so exciting. Even the whole subplot with, you know, uh,
2: or I guess the main plot with Julia and Adolphus LaSalle and his wife abducting their kid and the fact that they can't get a divorce and women have no rights. So, I mean, the, there's a whole plot about women in the, in the, in Squire Burkett's family trying to break free of his control and secretly educating themselves in science and mathematics. I mean, it's just, it's, it's wild. Um, some of this was based on her grandmother's experience, Frances Sheridan, who is also a famous novelist um, and Frances Sheridan, her father refused to teach her to read because he didn't think women deserve to learn how to read; that they shouldn't learn. So she had to secretly learn. Um, so some of the stuff passed down through the family. Mm-hmm. So you know, kind of makes more sense that Caroline Norton would react to her own situation with this kind of history of female rebellion in the family. But um, but what ends up happening in this story that I think would be even even better on screen is the fact that Maryamne and Theodora marry, one of them marries a Jewish banker and the other marries an English peer. So she's become a member of the British aristocracy at that point, it's wild. And there's so many things, news articles I found from about a century later where people talk about the open fact that a lot of the houses in Britain have Someone in the family who's a West Indian heiress who mm-hmm. was descended at least partly from Africans. So, you know,
0: a that lot of this, a has lot kind of, of been sense. Over. It feels like that new money, like, yeah, blood infusion makes sense. And it also kind of mirrors the sort of like American blood infusion that happens yeah. in the 20th, yes. early 20th um, century. I think that was actually
2: what it was being discussed it, that that was the context in which it was being discussed um what what's interesting to me as well is that when women of color appear as heiresses in 19th century novels they're usually set within this period from the teens to the 20s Jane Eyre for example is mm-hmm. and that's where Bertha Mason appears um so is Vanity Fair and you know Whenever you have uh, Rhoda, of course, um, is the Rhoda Schwartz is the heiress in that case. But you have these women who are in high society, who are wealthy, and who are not white, mm-hmm. and people are still marrying them because they want the money. It's right. the upstart age, and so it just happens that they're also black upstarts. And believe it or not, <laughs> they were actually accepted in the sense of taken for their money. Mm-hmm. Um, the article I read too, I'll have to send you the link. but, um, the author also hints that some of them were kind of kept in the country after they married oh, interesting. by these families as if they were ashamed of them. Yeah. So it would also explain why, you know, portraits of them might not appear. Um, if they had children, it would probably be, you know, emphasize, you know, keep marrying white people, you know, mm-hmm. as, as the generations went on. Um, So, I mean, there's, I think, a a whole secret history of Black presence in the upper class. Um, Gretchen Holbrook-Gerzina has discussed a lot of this in several of her books, not only about the 19th century, but just the long history of African presence in the UK. But, you know, wealthy people, we tend to think of it as being like middle-class or lower-class presence. They might've actually been in the highest tiers of society, just was kind
0: of not talked about. That's interesting. It's, um, funny too, because like before we started recording, well, we've talked about a couple of things off off mic that are very interesting, real like real people. Um, so one being Ann Lister's first lover, who was who was essentially locked yes. away in the country, interestingly enough, and locked away in an attic could have been possibly a a lot of people yes
2: (laughs) the inspiration for uh rochester's wife bertha mason in um jane eyre a lot of these people were sent to rural boarding schools i find it interesting that in fashionable connections mr tornado is staying in rural areas where he's been it is assumed educated so he's been educated um, under the sort of watchful eye of squire burkett who was a friend of his father. So that whole patriarchal complicity in this situation, you know, Squire Burkett is disgusted at what his friend has done, but he's still going to help him out and educate his heir, but not in London, not at Eton, not at one of these noble schools, you know, he's, he's sort of packed off to rural areas. So I am not qualified to possibly do this kind of historical exploration, but something does need to be done. I think In terms of tracing how many of these children went from places like india and you know the west indies to rural schools and -hmm. were educated there before maybe being placed um because they certainly weren't as visible in wealthy schools yeah um, for the upper class so yeah there's definitely a, a hiding thing going on there with girls and boys
0: do you think that there was there like real life inspiration for mr tornado
2: There were a few individuals. Um I believe Grazina talks about a few people in particular. There's a new anthology that came out that talks about the first black sheriff who lives in the UK. So there I I'm still kind of mulling this over and seeing how many of these people that you know might have met. Mm -hmm. So her uncle was a politician, uh, Richard Brinsley Sheridan. And he was a Whig, and he possibly would have known several Black people in high positions of authority, including this man. I can't prove it, um, Mm -hmm. but it is uh, possible that she might have met some of these people. I did read her mother's diary, um, Betsy Sheridan's diary. So it's written in the years right before she got married. Um, to her sister's (laughs) brother-in-law. They had a double kind of relationship (laughs) on the Sheridan Le Fanu (laughs) side. Yeah. But so she's living in in London, she's living in Bath, and she talks about how um, there's a riot and Richard Brinsley Sheridan was being tossed around in the crowd and he was almost trampled to death. And this black man raced to his side and saved him. Mm -hmm. And the family was so grateful they put together a collection to give to this man who'd been slightly injured so he i think he hurt his arm protecting um richard so they're living side by side with people of color in some cases being yeah. saved by them you know having these interactions um so you know it's kind of difficult to see how she wouldn't meet some people like that at least know mm-hmm. that story from her mother and you know kind of see people who are black in a different way i mean mr tornado is a hero of romance in this story Mm -hmm. Uh, there's even like you know secret meetings in different places Um, he's holed up in the town waiting for belinda to make up her mind and run away with him which she doesn't do so then he goes with someone who will but he's very heathcliff like and um you know someone who clearly cares about his family Mm -hmm. cares about getting set up in town making a life for them getting his sisters placed a downside to the story is that we don't really hear the tornadoes talk um it's very similar to the situation with um miss lamb in austin's (laughs) sanditon we whether she would have talked as the story went on we don't know but um we don't hear them talk i don't know if it's because Lefanu was nervous about rendering the dialect or if it's some othering going on there mm-hmm. but um there's you know it doesn't pop out like in Owen castle and you know published in 1816 where we do hear the dialect from the West right. Indies in the mouths of you know characters who were black so you yeah. know that's interesting All speculation
0: <laughs> and like the tornadoes have a lot of storyline too unlike yeah like, with Miss Lamb, I've always wondered about that. Like, was she going to be developed further? Were we gonna? Was Austin mm-hmm. gonna try a thing where she had all of these, you know, white characters speaking over her? You know, like unclear, unclear what was or you know right. what was happening there. But yeah, the tornadoes have quite a bit of mm-hmm. plot, and there's a lot. There's three of them. Yes, it's pretty. It's a family.
2: Um, I think that that was what shocked me because we see individual black people in stories and they're always isolated and sometimes ganged up on most of the time, you know, exploited financially, which I think Austin was setting Miss Lamb up to at least be in danger of. She's in a novel where people want money. They're all upstarts in an upstart town and she's she's, got this fortune. So how she's the lamb to the slaughter Um, in that book. Yeah. basically. Even her um, even the woman caring for her, I forget her name at the home, but even that woman is you know superintending her medical care and selling her, you know, making her pay for products made by someone in her own family, you know, so she's already being exploited in some ways. So what struck me about fashionable connections was we've got three black people who are a family who love each other, who obviously are trying to make something together for their kind of dynasty you know Mm -hmm. they don't just disappear they're going to public places they're seen in public they're not ashamed of being seen they have so much money that they're able to have more privilege perhaps Um, not to say that they aren't still subjected to racism but they take action they do things they Mm -hmm. enjoy the society they're living in they're culturally involved (laughs) it was just all the things that you know I'd always been told it didn't exist. And then there it is. So I'm like, what What do I not know about this period? What are they keeping <laughs> from us? So, yeah.
0: <laughs> is it all buried in archives? I mean, like, now that we know what to maybe look for, perhaps, do we think we're going to find more? I think so. I mean,
2: it's tricky. I think there's... um. I've been doing a project on Lee Hunt, which I will probably save for another day to talk to you about, but he was a, a huge romantic poet, friend of, of um, you know Byron and Shelley. He's in the portrait of them burning Shelley's body. He had Black ancestry. Everyone mm-hmm. knew it. It was an open secret. All of his portraits were fake to make him look white, and then there's some portraits that it shows that he's not, and he always mm-hmm. would freak out over those. Um, it's hard to know who was and who wasn't, and it kind of puts you as a researcher in danger of looking at portraits to try to find features, and then you're like, "What am I doing?" Right. You know, but it's just like there's there's not there's not enough evidence sometimes. So, for me, I found a lot of evidence about um, about Hunt and his own writings, which is not the case for a lot of these figures. Some of them don't have writings. I found it in what people said to describe him because he was such a famous figure um i found it a lot in private correspondence carlisle whenever he writes to his brothers trash talks um the hunts and usually their skin color um and when byron writes to mary shelley he trash talks hunts children and compares them to hottentots who live in a crawl and says that they're yahoos i mean it's like all the racial imagery that you can Mm -hmm. possibly put into a thing to be like they're not white um so it, it, it takes some digging. I think mm-hmm. the more we know about records in the West Indies, actually, I think the more that we'll know about records that are in Britain, right. they're kind of on both ends of that. So yeah, it'll be a project. And I think a lot of websites are starting to make that become, um, you know, more of a possibility, especially the ones that are devoted to understanding genealogies of West Indian Brits. Um, there are several in particular where it's like they have the whole genealogy spilled out. They have names of slaveholders, of you know, people who were liberated, of people who you know had some kind of ancestry, like the uh, British poet Alice Maynell. By the way, it might interest you to know that Lady Catherine de Bourgh, the actress, Barbara Lee Hunt in the 1996 Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. is descended from Lee Hunt.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I did not know that. Yeah. What's crazy too is like just on the Lee Hunt note, which Lydia knows, but like our listeners do not know. I was just like I had just finished a bio that had discussed Lee Hunt because um, I'm all into those mm-hmm. those guys at the moment, and just like there was no mention of no his ancestry and I was no. I was so mad when he told me and I was just, but I was also so happy I, know. And I was like this is so exciting but also I can't believe <laughs> I just read this book and like I know. there's no mention <laughs> yeah well I'm I'm working on
2: as I've told you before I'm working on a project right now that examines Bleak House because you know Harold Skimpole was based on Lee Hunt and Dickens openly admitted it So what I'm doing is I'm looking at what that means in light of his portrayal as an idle person. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that Carlisle, his former next-door neighbor in the 1830s, had just written a very offensive tract about the idle Black man who should be forced to work um, as long as he's living in Great Britain and its territories, I mean, It's just, it's all there. Dickens Mm -hmm. telling a correspondent that he, of course, stayed away from the outward figure of Hunt when he was doing this portrayal. It's just like, ah, this changes (laughs) the whole thing. Right. I mean, especially in a novel that's all about Africa and African missions and who are we giving this money to? Oh, not poor white children like Joe. Skimpole is taking all of it. I'm like, Mm -hmm. ah. So it's these hidden histories that are actually... You know, the less it doesn't. I think finding out these things actually makes literature richer Mm
1: -hmm. because
2: it it shows us all the people who are involved in the story.
1: And we are back. Uh, Big thanks to Lydia for joining us on the show again. Brilliant discussion every time. I'm so jealous that I just listen to these great conversations you guys have. Now, Lauren, at the top of the show, you said. Mm hear me out. You said that Americans Mm -hmm. have a hard time understanding the problem with social climbers and yet Exhibit A, season Mm -hmm. one of The Real Housewives of New York Alex and Simon like they got rinsed for being social climbers and they they talked about it very openly and then people were like really against them for like being Mm -hmm. social climbers and yeah and then and you were like yeah erica jane and i just was so curious about that that like what was it about erica jane that made her the first housewife you thought of in that context okay
0: so i have to admit (laughs) i completely erased simon and alex from my mind somehow they were just gone they're just gone (laughs) and you're right yeah back to australia just out of sight out of mind with those guys um so I feel like I should expand on my statement on how Americans or rather this very middle class American feels about upstarts and social climbers. And I mm-hmm. specify middle class because I might feel differently if I came from a wealthy and connected family. Right. Like mm-hmm. probably be a very different person. So I do think that Americans in particular love a rags to riches story because it ties in with the whole American dream thing, right? So Mm -hmm. America is this land of opportunities where anyone, no matter where they come from, can make it. They just have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And this narrative is like just so popular that almost everyone incorporates it into their own story when they become successful, whether it's true or not, which I find Mm -hmm. interesting. So, i.e. the whole, like, I came from nothing, which is why I am so deserving of all of this money and power. And we see this all the time from CEOs, celebrities. And I'm going to talk about this in terms of Real Housewives, (laughs) because I think that that is an entire franchise just about social climbers and upstarts, really. That's how I see it. And If you're not a reality TV fan, listeners, I just beg you to stay with me because I think everything that I'm going to say right now could be lifted from a 19th century novel. In fact, (laughs) adapt this into a 19th century novel. I think it works. Yes. Totally works. So I love that you brought up Real Housewives of New York because I actually think it fits in perfectly with something that Lydia said during the interview. So the first season of New York is essentially, I'm going to throw this out here, mm-hmm. it's about two upstarts. One is Bethany Frankel and the other is Alex McCord. And these women are joining an older and already established friend group of New York socialites.
1: Mm. that That's great stuff, Lauren.
0: Yeah. yeah. This is, I think this is what this mm-hmm. show is about. Bethany, in those early seasons, is on a hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. She had a rough childhood. She has no family money or safety net. She started this catering company, and she lived in an apartment. An apartment. (laughs) Unlike her castmates, who all have a townhouse in the city and a house in the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. Very wealthy women. And Bethany was using her relationship with people like Ramona Singer... And Countess Luann to further her business, not only to like become one of them eventually, but uh, she does become more wealthy and more powerful. She's she's a social climber, right? Because like, let's face it, she would never hang out with someone like Ramona Singer just for fun. Mm-hmm. She's doing it because there's something in it for her, right? It's she's using her for connections. She's using her, you know, because she's on this show to like build her empire it's it is not a like a legit connection um and like remember too you know bethany is a different character now but mm-hmm. a few years ago like how celebrated she was for mm. it, like people and she really called it networking right and mm-hmm. business acumen but it's social climbing Right. Let's like let's be real about it, which is fine. Like I have no I have no like I'm not not judging her like she was trying to build an empire. Okay, I get it. Right. Alex McCord, I think, almost functions like Bethany's dark double. Mm -hmm. She's essentially doing the same thing, but she's not doing it as well. Like she's not funny. She's not relatable. Her husband's ridiculous. She talks about it all the time talks about it all the time. She doesn't skewer the rich like Bethany mm-hmm. does in those early seasons. Now let's remember, Bethany sort of becomes the thing that she's making fun of.
1: Yeah, so but she does start out about, like, yeah.
0: Yeah, she starts out as one of us. Um, Alex is also like very hazy about her background and her goals. Mm-hmm. Like I'm unsure like what her motivations are. I'm unsure where she comes from. And my read on Alex is that she's seeking some sort of
1: validation. Wow, look at that townhouse. That's obviously what it is. She wants everyone to be like, it's okay. We still want you. But they don't yeah. say that. They just make and fun of the townhouse.
0: And it's annoying, right? <laughs> and it like gets under their skin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas Bethany, it's almost like everyone just respects her blind ambi- or her like bold ambition, mm-hmm. right? Like... She wants money and power, and a.k.a. she says she's building her
1: brand. Mm. That's mm-hmm. how she says it.
0: That's how she cloaks it.
1: And she talks and a lot about she wants to have it all. And she's talking mm-hmm. about it in the context of like a career. She wants a child. She wants to have uh, a husband and, you know, and and all, all of, of that, you know. But she, she really does mean I want to have it all. And yeah. why these other women aren't, like, running away scared. I mean, Luanne tries to take her down, which is great. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she's just like, I want to.
0: So, yeah, I just think that Bethany almost functions like a Becky Sharp type character. Mm. And then Alex McCord is sort of, you know, what Lydia was talking about. She's the annoying upstart. Because there's there's always two. There's always two to show you how it's properly done and then how it's not supposed to be done.
1: Alex is like a Lucy Steele. Yes. Yeah. For a sure. Lucy Steele to a Becky Sharp, right? Like.
0: Yeah. We're crossing we're crossing time and space and novels, but it works. It works. You guys get it. Yeah. So, um I don't want you to worry because this <laughs> has not become a real housewives podcast. I mean, I, I would wish. like it to be. I, I wish. wish.
1: Are you joking? <laughs>
0: I feel like Hannah and I have some of our most interesting conversations when we're talking about Real Housewives. Just
1: think of like the niche insight and like it rich like a gravy and fine like a wine, that podcast. Like (laughs) mm, it would just be so good. So the other thing that the other Real Housewives connection that came to mind. I think Real Housewives is the perfect pairing for this book, by the way. Never mind doing Mm -hmm. a twinned reading. Just make people watch this show every every uh, aspect of the show every season uh so yeah when miss lamb and the sisters and fashionable connections came up and how these characters are just in constant danger of being exploited by those around them who would not necessarily have had anything to do with them if they weren't wealthy right that's the Mm -hmm. um yeah and just how that we're seeing that play out on the more recent seasons of the real housewives with the introductions of uh, women of color onto the real housewives of new york and the real housewives of beverly hills so in new york they've introduced ebony k williams to the show this past season and garcelle bouvet and crystal Minkov to beverly hills and there has been this real scramble especially anything that was shot like last year this year Mm -hmm. right just from the white cast members as they simultaneously try to align themselves with the newcomers and also appear unproblematic and refusing to like acknowledge their white privilege. So they want to be like, Hey, everything's fine between us. Like I love you, but don't let's not talk about me. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about how great you are, but I can't, I don't want to be implicated in anything. Mm -hmm. And they're all doing it. Like there's a really uncomfortable scene where Kathy Hilton is just insisting to Garcelle that she is so similar to her sister, Kyle Richards, that she like got them confused when like, right, Garcelle like walks like into the room because they're so colorblind. similar. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Heather Thompson, oh my gosh, the Heather stuff in the Hampsons. where, and she's like, oh, Ebony, I just wanted to, she like comes back into the room to be like, Ebony, I just wanted to say you're so articulate. And yeah, and just, and conversations about like Ramona Singer, like, Posting photos of the black women she knew after the Black Lives Matter stuff, uh, like protests. and Using them as
0: accessories, essentially.
1: Yeah. And it's just so, yeah, To so to hear about that book and then just thinking about that and you just see it. And it's just on TV. You can just watch it. You can just watch it happening. You Like <laughs> it's anyone wild. doubting Miss, uh, Jane Austen knowing about or understanding Miss Lamb, just put The Real Housewives of New York on, you know. <laughs> Give it a go. Um, I mean, I
0: love what you wrote here too about Ebony Thompson. Or sorry, about Heather Thompson calling Ebony eloquent on the show, and then turning around um, and calling her a race baiter in the press behind well, her back. She
1: Technically agrees with someone who calls her a race baiter mm-hmm. twice. Yeah. <laughs> so she re- she she obviously thinks it. But yeah, yeah. So she's like all fine on the camera, but then after it aired, because Heather like quits the season quite early on um and then when the episode's are airing yeah she kind of speaks out about it
0: i am really glad you brought up this comparison because it's really great someone is anyone doing their dissertation on this like someone should be
1: <laughs> um it's awesome imagine something someone I... quoting that rant just like <laughs> <laughs> verbatim um um This is also something I've been thinking
0: about quite a bit lately, like how people of color maneuver in predominantly wealthy and white spaces Mm -hmm. and how they are manipulated sort of in those spaces as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm currently reading Children of Uncertain Fortune, Mixed Race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic Family by Daniel Livesey. And essentially, it's about real life people like Miss Lamb. Olivia Fairfield from Woman of Color, and The Tornadoes from Fashionable Connections. So it's about mixed race heirs to plantation fortunes that then end up uh, moving to England. And before reading this book, I didn't realize how large the mixed race population was in Jamaica. And I'm just going to give you some numbers. So in 1789, there were approximately 18,000 white people. 7,500 free mixed-race people, 2,500 free Black people, and 250,000 enslaved people who were both Black and mixed-race. And the number of free mixed people was on the rise partially due to the fact that there was always more white men than women on the island. So many of these free people of color were then traveling to England for work, to attend school, or because they had, you know, family connections. Some married into society, and some were quite wealthy. And I have a few quotes from the book, which I have just like highlighted so many quotes from this book. But Hannah, will you read a couple of these here that I found really interesting?
1: Cross-racial relationships abounded in a Jamaican society with tremendous gender disparity among its white population. They were thus highly normalised, even if published accounts bemoaned the practice. Fathers who took care of offspring, born from these unions, treated them as children. They paid for their upbringing, sent them to school, gave them large hereditary bequests, and in some cases, wrote lovingly about them. The children in turn looked to their fathers as patriarchs. They drew on them for support, listed their names when appealing for governmental assistance and took strong positions within their father's extended families. Broadly speaking, the survey of wills demonstrates that sending a mixed race child to Britain was a regular and sustained practice from the late 18th to the early 19th centuries.
0: So the heirs... And, you know, the wealthy and powerful people of color were a great source of panic and concern to white lawmakers and aristocrats because they obviously had this opportunity to tip the balance of power. Right. So, you know, what starts happening if these free people of color assist with rebellions or start taking over more and more plantations and proceeds? And, you know, what if they free enslaved people like this is these are all Mm -hmm. questions that people are constantly, you know, throwing out there. So lawmakers and high society folks tried a bunch of different strategies to try and control them, essentially, very consciously. Like, how do we how do we do this? How do we control these people? We could, we should allow them into our spaces, but like on our terms. Right. Mm-hmm. So one strategy was to cultivate them and turn them into allies. And another was to start creating very random rules and passing laws to you know keep them from inheriting money or um, shut down their voting privileges mm. just anything they could think of to you know to control these people and we are seeing the same thing play out on housewives right now essentially mm-hmm. like how do I suck up to these people how do I get them on my side and also make sure they live by my rules and never challenge my own privilege that's basically that's what's
1: exactly
0: happening. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So. So, yeah. Anyone who's out there writing their dissertation about this, please contact me at <laughs> I'm on to immediately. <laughs> so that's actually all we have for you guys this week. But be sure to join us for our next episode in our season on sex, scandal and social climbers, where we will be joined by special guest Fiona Sampson to discuss a writer that is very close to my heart elizabeth barrett browning and hannah where can our good listeners find us in the meantime
1: you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn you can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com you can join our lively discussion group on facebook by searching for bonnets at dawn and you can buy our book why she wrote wherever you usually get your literary fix be that a bookshop like back of a lorry just go get it oh
0: wow back of a lorry (laughs) back of a lorry